you know, I, fo I focus these days on B2B tech. And so I have a pretty well-rounded insight of a large range of industries of all the things that have gone wrong, all the pain points, all of those sort of triggers of how things can just kind of uh, take a turn for the worst. I'm a bit of an introvert, to be honest with you, so I kind of like having some time to just kind of like zone out in my head and be on my own and kind of just get, uh, get lost. I mean, grit is something that some people will say that you're born with it, but I think you also accumulate it by getting forced into difficult situations. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Kevin is the founder and managing partner of Indelible Ventures, a seed stage VC in Malaysia targeting tech-enabled B2B products that can scale internationally. Before Indelible Ventures, he grew up in the U.S. and worked in finance and as an investor before making the move to Malaysia. Hi, Kevin. Great speaking to you today. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me here. So I, I did a bit of digging a bit more about you, and I think for me, one of the things I was really curious about is, you know, you landed here in Malaysia after growing up in the West and you've done a lot of, you know, investments on the media side and in other mm -hmm. spaces, but now you're just doing B2B in Malaysia. And I wanted to ask, like, in that whole journey, would you point to maybe any experiences that you had growing up that were maybe particularly notable that maybe in hindsight make all the dots connect to where, where you are now? I wish I could say that there's like some sort of straight line that connects everything through, but it's really like a, a little bit of an unusual path. I mean, for somebody that goes into finance, oftentimes there's this like dedicated pedigree of what your resume and what your background ought to look like. Uh, and unfortunately, that was just not mine. So I, I grew up in the U.S., but I'm really from kind of like a middle of nowhere sort of place where when I grew up, it was just like farmland around me. We were like one of the only houses that not, did not own farm property. And so like over time, you know, it started to develop and develop and develop. But the place looks nothing like when, when I was there. So I ended up leaving there in my university days. Ultimately ended up getting grad school in, in New Jersey, come out of grad school, get a job in New York. And that was like height of financial crisis as well. So like 2008 coming out of grad school, lost my initial job because like a lot of people that had jobs lined up just saw them disappear. And I was one of those quantitative alphabet soup sort of people where like all the products that had those letter acronyms was everything that nobody wanted to touch anymore. And so it was quite, it was quite problematic, but fortunately like I ended up finding, finding my way. Uh, I had a short job on Wall Street absolutely hated it. I think I lasted like three months there. Um, and then like got, a, got into a little bit of a blow up with my, with my boss at the time. Uh, so that didn't, that, that didn't work out so well. Uh, but fortunately landed with a company called Tiger Capital um, and then was doing distressed, a lot of consultant work, a lot of buyouts, turnarounds, those sort of aspects. I would say that was really the biggest formative component of my career. Not that it's heavily related into 
uh, the early stage startup environment. But when you're dealing with a really fast pace and you're seeing a lot of companies that have kind of made a turn for the worst and trying to dig in and figure out how can you save it, what went wrong in the first place. You know, I, fo I focus these days on B2B tech. And so I have a pretty well-rounded insight of a large range of industries of all the things that have gone wrong, all the pain points, all of those sort of triggers of how things can just kind of uh, take a turn for the worst. The problem with that is that when you're doing distrust and you're doing turnarounds, you have this tendency of walking into an office building and everyone looking at you like you're the Grim Reaper that's just going to lay off half the staff. And it's kind of a bit of a reality of those distress situations that you have to do those sort of purges. We're in a time period right now within the tech industry where you're seeing a lot of layoffs. It's unfortunate. Um, being the kind of the person that's making those decision calls is, is really taxing uh, on the on the individuals, especially if you're working as an outside party that comes in, buys, and then has, has to kind of take that role. So I, I made a switch and started going into um, in international markets, going into emerging markets, going into impact investing. So after that, I spent basically the next decade doing impact. And that's ultimately what landed me into Southeast Asia because I took over the Asia portfolio for an impact fund. I got quite involved into the startup ecosystem and, and just kind of fell in love with, with Malaysia. I think growing up in a small town in the U.S. is totally different from, I mean, you know, staying in Southeast Asia and Malaysia, right? But when you look back at like your childhood and I asked you maybe when you're five or six years old, would you have known what you wanted to be? Because, I mean, you were surrounded by, you know, a lot of farmland. And maybe you're a bit different because you're the only house with no farm. But if I asked you back then, what would you have answered? I mean, people are shaped by the context that's around them. Um, so to be perfectly honest with you, I have no clue what thoughts were in my head as a five or six-year-old. Like, my my like my recollection of those days is, is pretty thin. Um but I'd have to imagine there was there was probably one of those like standard sort of I want to be an astronaut or I want to be a fireman sort of like boilerplate. What does a little kid want to do? But who, who knows? Who knows? I mean, it was it's it, it was it was pretty notable, and I and I know that if you spoke to anyone that that, that knew me at a very young age, that I always had a bit of wanderlust. But the funny thing is, is that I never actually stepped foot on a plane until I was like twenty two, and that was to move out of the country for a year. Uh, and that basically haven't really spent any considerable amount of time back in my in my home town since then. So, what was your childhood like, and like how did you, like how did people see that you had some sort of wanderlust in you? Uh, I mean, that's 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 a good question. So, one wanderlust I would put it was when you when you kind of grow up in the middle of nowhere and you don't have and you kind of live in this bubble where you don't really know too much about the outside world. It's more so of like simply having that uh, exploratory desire kind of roaming around and just trying to explore. Uh, so we grew we, we had a lot of woods around us. So I would disappear for pretty extended periods of time, just kind of exploring and, and trying to kind of make my way around and, and just kind of see what there was very sort of like discovery oriented. But th to be honest with you, like, Going going back, those are different times. I can't imagine any parent <laughs> being willing to allow a kid uh, to do the types of stuff I was doing at those days. 
how long were those extended periods of time? Like not like over one day, right? Or not like a whole evening? Uh, no, I'm pretty sure that I've slept over in the woods a couple of times. But I mean, we 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 grew up in that so that uh, with with the woods all around us. So it was it was not it was there's there's not a lot of like dangerous animals or anything like that that were in our area. Uh, so like the worst thing that's going to happen is like a deer comes by and th that's not going to do anything. And I think you'd be happy to see a deer, right? <laughs> as, as, as a, a kid? kid? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, may maybe like a buck with the horns and all of that would be a little bit scary for a little kid <laughs> if it's coming up close. But uh, no, you'd be super keen to see it. And then like when you're growing up and you're about to head to college, like I'm guessing maybe out of state, how did you feel like? Did you have a clear idea of like what you wanted to be or did you just want to maybe get out of state, explore a bit more? What thoughts were in your head at the time? So, yeah, so like there's a there's a there's a bit of an interesting story. It doesn't make me look so good, uh, but I'll tell the story anyways. <laughs> So going going through going through high school and all of that, I was like top of my class, but I was always bored. You know, I was the I was the type of kid that slept through class but still got straight A's. But unfortunately, in my last little bit of time in school, I was a little bit of a troublemaker. And so my school kindly said, because you got in trouble, you're no longer allowed back. And so because of that, my university days were a little bit more complicated because then I did not have uh, the options that were previously open to me because universities don't want troublemakers. So I actually got a full-time job and was doing university at night, which is not a normal thing uh, for, uh, for, for, for that age. Normally you go away to school, you have the kind of living in a dormitory experience, all of that. Uh, but because I messed up, I had to take it a little bit of a different path. So I worked hard. I ended up working as a consultant um, and kind of, you know, wor worked quite hard through through the rest of the way. Got to grad, got close to graduation. Um, I was originally a computer science major, um, but I started realizing like it's not really what I wanted to do, and so I switched over to business and ultimately fell on finance because I was always much more like quantitative, logic structures, those, those sort of things. Um, and so, yeah, ultimately ended up making the change. I did my last bit of university in, in Amsterdam. So I did a, did an abroad program there where I basically like quit my job, sold all my belongings and was like, all right, I'm leaving. Uh, and yeah, like that was the first time that I ever, I mean, really what little all. I had, <laughs> but like it all fits into one suitcase, um, okay. at that age. Yeah. Um, but I, I sold my car, I sold all of the stuff that I had and yeah, hopped on a plane for the very first time in my life in order to live overseas. Amsterdam. And was that by the university or did you like Yeah, the university outside? had a, okay. no, the university helped arrange that. Um, so the, I did, I did my last little bit there, but for the last year, I really only had one credit that I needed. And so it was more me taking kind of like. Studying, yes. Going to class, yes. But to be honest with you, it would probably would be what other people would say is like a gap year between university and grad school. Because after I finished that, I moved to Mexico to do an intensive language program to learn the language because I was looking at international universities for grad school. And then finally, I ended up landing on, on, on a university called Seton Hall that's in New Jersey. They had a program with the United Nations because I started feeling a little bit more 
uh, international at that point. Uh, never worked for the UN, never worked for a government agency, went a completely different direction when I landed on Wall Street, obviously. Um, but yeah, that's, that's uh, again, it's like, it's, it's kind of a winding path. Uh, so I kind of went all over the place. What was it like to, to work in the mornings and then, you know, study university at night? Obviously, that's very different probably from your peers. And how was that experience for you? Yeah, so I mean, most of my classmates were much older. They were people that had been in, you know, trades, tra like tradesmen careers and those sort of things that were going back in order to try and better their lives. So it was a bit different. There was not really like a necessarily like a peer group of, as, of people my own age, but they had kind of like the dedication to kind of fix. There was a commonality in that they had the dedication to fix some of the things that had deviated in the paths of their lives. Uh, so we had commonality there. So I'd basically work in the morning, go to school at night, and then I would work in a hotel overnight and sleep there. And then I, I guess throughout the process, like how did you realize like something wasn't fit for you? You started with computer science and then you ended up with business and then you ended up through to finance. I, I guess for context, like I never went through college and I thought I would have like the same degree from freshman year until the end. So I'm curious, like, how did you go through that process, especially during a time where you're doing so much, you're doing a job, uh, you're studying at night and you have all of these people with such different, I guess, like lives as well as your peers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of things are done simply because you have no other choice. So the aspect of having to work during the day and then go to school at night is more of an aspect of, I just didn't have a choice. And so I could look at the type of job that, I, that was available to me at that point in time. And there wasn't a whole lot to it. So I, I could look at it and say, my pathway is capped. You know, the, the cool thing that has happened now because of the enabling of technology and so forth is that those types of barriers have been completely removed. So a person that grows up in kind of middle of nowhere sort of place can have a lot of the same opportunities as anybody else and all of the enablement to where the educational infrastructure of university grad school is really put in question of the necessity of it or whether or not there's a new form. And I know there's a number of folks that have started working on, you know, business models around that. But someone like yourself, the necessity of a university education is not as required because ultimately what comes out of it is some sort of piece of paper saying that you graduated. But when you look at the amount of people out there that are currently working in their major of study, it's very few. I can't remember the exact percent, but if, if, if memory serves, I want to say that there's a statistic in the U.S. that it's, only, that it's something like 20 or 30 percent of, of people there are working in the, in, the, in the study of their major. Now, if that's the case, was it worth paying tens of thousands or perhaps $100,000 on this expensive education? when you're not even working in the related field, I think it throws into question some of those necessity aspects. I would say, so I, I did go and get uh, a CFA charter. Um, so I am a CFA charter holder from the CFA Institute, which is a chartered financial analyst for, for those that don't know CFA. Um, that I actually do find was extremely useful for me from an education standpoint, because there's a lot of foundational concepts, practical application and so forth 
that when analyzing, investing, and, and those sort of activities has a lot of applicability. It's much more geared towards public markets. So a person needs to have an understanding of how to apply it to private markets. I guess in, in some, the whole educational system could use a little bit of uh, a rework, but that, that's what happened to me. I, I, just, I just kind of saw where I thought was a better fit for me. I guess the question I really have, I mean, you suddenly couldn't have the options that you thought you had, you know, for university, and then you're put in this position where, as you said, um, you know, you, you'd had no choice but to take any job, work it in the day, uh, go to university at night. But I guess you could have easily just not have made it work for yourself, right? You could have given up. You didn't have to take a a graduate degree after. You didn't have to go uh, to an overseas program. You could have been a bomb, right? If you wanted to. But what was we your all, motivation back then? We always have the then? choice. Right. What was your motivation back then? Because I think, at least from my perspective, it's a very difficult space to be emotionally as well, right? Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's challenging. I mean, my, the... The reason why I decided to continue the education as opposed to just focusing on work was because of what the pathway of that work that I saw at that point in time, because it was capped. Um, we didn't have, I didn't have the visibility and being able to see how the barriers uh, would be broken down by technology. Um, I won't date myself, but I am, I'm, I'm, pr I'm probably at least twice, twice, twice your age. <laughs> so this is, this is the, the, a lot of this experience is, is, is going back quite a bit of time. I realized, you know, I, as I said, I was, I was top of my school when I, whenever I was a little kid. So I was always growing up in the middle of nowhere. There's no, there's no place to put the, the, the kids that are a little bit further ahead. You ever, at your, the yeah. problem with most education is that everyone is brought to is intended intended to be brought down to the mean so if you're advanced you're brought down to the mean if you're falling behind you're left behind and that's the pro like I, most education systems are that way and certainly where i grew up it was that way and so i did see and i understood what the potential was um and it was, the, I think that was kind of the, the, the motivating factor where I, I saw the kind of the cycle that I was in and I, and I had commented that I started getting into bad behaviors and the things that put me into the circumstance in the first place. I saw that I needed to get out. Uh, so the biggest thing that corrected the course for me was simply leaving my hometown and disconnecting from all of those things that ended up dragging me down in the first place. So once you, I guess, crossed that, did you feel like it was sort of a point of no return? Like this is a new me, like a totally new chapter of my life where I start maybe from zero? I think, so. I mean, not necessarily from zero, but it was definitely a, it was definitely a new chapter. It was, it was a new me, it was a new motivation, it was a new chance. Um, you know, it's 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 kind of one of those things. It's it's understandable that somebody is going to fail uh, in certain aspects. Nobody gets a hundred percent correct. Whether you're talking startup life or you're talking real life, uh, sometimes people fail, and failing is okay as long as you get back up, learn from it, and do better the next time. Uh, and to be perfectly blunt, I failed in the beginning, but I picked myself up. I ended up getting out. I saw what needed to be fixed, and I and I think I ended up fixing it appropriately. There were a lot of injured relationships that happened because of what I thought was necessary in me leaving. Um, 
But in hindsight, I don't think I would still have uh, the any similar sort of quality of life that I do now if I would have stuck around there. What does like getting out like mean to you, or like how did how did you know like when you got out? Um, when I got out was I hopped on a plane for the first time, first time in my life, I flew to an entirely different country, uh, to, to live. <laughs> and so that it's, 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 it's kind of like, uh, for somebody that grows up in the middle of nowhere to all of a sudden hop on a plane, you've never been overseas. You've only been outside of your own state. Maybe I think I was outside of my own state, maybe two or three times in my entire life. Uh, so very much of like, a bubble boy, uh, you know, just kind of in this insulated sort of environment. Um, and it's Amsterdam. It's like a totally new language, totally different continent. Which probably totally for culture. somebody that's, yeah, but probably for somebody that's trying to escape bad habits that they were growing up with, being in Amsterdam and having all of the coffee shops was probably not the, the cleanest <laughs> break, uh, let's say. Yeah, I can imagine. But like, how was it when you moved to Amsterdam? Did you have like any expectations for when you when you moved there? Any expectations for yourself or for your life? And then what was the experience like? I mean, I think one of the things that I realized most firmly, and a lot of people when you when you do that that move abroad first off, they talk about the culture shock, the difference of cultures and those sort of things. I don't think I necessarily got culture shock because the cultures of Europe are very similar to the U.S. because we're basically blends of those cultures. We're actually blends of a lot of different cultures because it's it's a nice melting pot, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. Depends upon uh, how much you watch uh, uh, watch watch it. And now he's reinstated on Twitter. And uh, anyways, um, but the thing that got me of moving overseas for the first time and actually having those walls break down was I realized that like you grow up when you grow up in a bubble and you're only exposed to the same media you're only exposed to the same sort of viewpoints from people as well that have not necessarily ever gone outside their own bubbles that you form these preconceived notions that are not always accurate and so getting outside was a big eye-opener from that perspective. Um, you know, growing up in the middle of nowhere, the middle of nowhere anywhere in the world is generally more conservative than growing up in a city. And so it was no different for me, but getting out kind of with an open mind, with that curiosity of wanting to explore and discover, uh, it broke a lot of those preconceived notions and made me realize that people are actually not very different. Cultures are different. But people are at the ex almost the exact same no matter where you go. Um, the whole like Maslow's hierarchy of needs applies to uh, like most people on the planet. Were there any specific challenges for you or big shocks for you that you remember um, from your stay in Amsterdam? Because I think for me, there was a time I had this opportunity to, to go overseas and stay there for, for a short while thanks to a scholarship program. And like I grew up from a young age seeing a lot of media um, saying that China, you know, there's like toxic and toxins in their their plastic, they spit on like the floor. And then I went to China for the first time on that trip. And then I realized everybody was so nice. I didn't see anyone spit on the floor until like, maybe two weeks in. And that was very, very rare. I didn't get poisoned by any plastic. And I didn't feel like smog was filling up my lungs. Uh, how about how about you in Amsterdam? How did you feel there? 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's not really there weren't any real uh, ne- negative preconceived notions. Um, you know, when I was there, I basically traveled to almost every single country of Europe uh, during that time. I really took the opportunity. I, I, the only country of Europe that I have not been to uh, is Norway and Ukraine. Got it. Uh, so and you do that every, on the weekends? It'd be weekends and then kind of disappearing from class because, like I said, I really only needed one credit. So uh, I, I, I come back for the test and, and have my own time. Uh, so I really, I really took advantage of how good the rail system is. But you you have you have some impressions when you start talking about like Romania, Bulgaria, when you start talking about uh, the Baltics, Latvia, Lithuania, etc. There are there are some things associated with those places, but I mean people are basically the same. The language can be a barrier, uh, but people are basically the same no matter where you end up going. And unfortunately, again, a lot of a lot of those preconceived notions are have negative motivations for how they ended up getting created in the first place. And so the same one with like the, the, the notions that you had mentioned about the Chinese, there's motivations behind why those were created in the first place um, that are not always positive. And when you would travel, would you be alone or would you be with a group of friends? And so when I went there in the first place, it was alone. Um, I'm a bit of an introvert, to be honest with you. So I kind of like having some time to just kind of like yeah. zone out in my head and be on my own and kind of just get uh, get lost. Um, I can definitely wear out a good shoe- pair of sneakers pretty fast because I like walking around uh, and exploring. It's just kind of who I am. But there's certainly times where like I, I, I would end up meeting up with, fr- with with some friends, making new friends along the way. Um, and that, and that sort of thing. And that's, that's played out over time. Now, you know, uh, I think if I, if I ended up starting, started tallying up all the countries that I've been through, I probably 90% of the Western hemisphere, all of Europe, um, 30% of the Middle East and most of Asia. I think anybody I've spoken to who has traveled like to many countries before, especially for the first time and traveling largely, I guess, alone or with a lot of different people at a time always says that they always have a a lot of key lessons that they learn from the experience. Would you say the same? And if so, like, are there any, I guess, key memories or key learnings from the time that you still keep to today? Yeah, I mean, I guess the biggest biggest thing is like leave your assumptions at the door. Um, so what, whatever you have in your head about the way somebody could end up being, and there, there's a mental math around it. It's it's efficient to have stereotypes. Unfortunately, a lot of them are negative, but you got to leave those assumptions at the door and be kind of open to 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 meet somebody to understand their perspective and so forth. Um, I think that's probably the biggest thing. Uh, that's, and that's, that served me qu- quite well. When you start talking about more remote areas that I've traveled to, the funny thing, the funny thing is, is like, I assume it's because I've got this red hair and I've carried a beard for most of my life now that people like in remote areas try and stop me and take a photo. I don't know <laughs> if I look like somebody, then they think that like I'm actually somebody else or if I just look so odd that they're like, no one will believe that I saw this redheaded giant roaming the streets here. But yeah, that's, that, that, that's would they the explain? other thing. Like, would they explain? And like, what are the reactions when they see you? <laughs> it, it depends upon if it's in a country that I actually speak the language. 
but it's 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 happened all o- it happens all over the place. It ha- it happened used to happen a lot when I was traveling through Latin America. It would happen a lot when I was in like southeastern Europe. Uh, it would ser- it would happen a lot in different parts of Asia. Um, I don't know what it is, but I mean, red hair is distinct and it's rare. Does it still happen today? Uh, it hasn't. Ha- I mean, it ha- the most recent time that it happened was probably like three or four years ago when I was traveling remote areas of Myanmar. So, but there's no common like thing that they say about like, do- are they always usually shocked or do they usually like? <laughs> it's, it's usually like the hand motion of, can I take a picture? Uh, and then no words, no words <laughs> exchange, and I'm like, okay, I'm used to it at this point. You want a photo? Take a photo of me. Maybe you look like a, a movie star they've seen. I guess. <laughs> I guess I, that's like I don't know. the only logical explanation in my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, people do say that all redheads kind of look alike. Uh, so, who knows? Perhaps. Then, <laughs> 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 then after like Amsterdam, and then after grad school, how did you decide to? To take your first job, like, how did you decide where you wanted to go? How did you end up on Wall Street? Yeah, I mean, getting the getting the first job was just, uh, to be honest with you, a bit of desperation because I had a job lined up with a bank that ended up get, disappearing uh, because of the financial crisis. They started rescinding all of the offers that were out there. I ended up getting a job with a boutique uh, firm, uh, 14 Wall Street, had a nice location. The window overlooks the New York Stock Exchange, uh, but I I absolutely hated it. Um, So not the wisest thing, but I quit that job pretty pretty quick into it. And then out of desperation again, uh, I was scrambling in order to find another job because New York is not a cheap place to live without an income. Definitely. And yeah, was was I got to be honest with you, I was really fortunate in order to get a job with Tiger Capital. And my boss at the time was was fantastic. He was the type that, you know, he gave you he gave you enough leeway in order to uh, learn and lead yourself, autonomy, responsibility. And he was also one of those types where FaceTime in the office is not important. The 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 completion of tasks is what's the important. Output. Yeah, and he used to say to me, like, I'm never going to have an argument with you about how many vacation days you've taken. If we're having a conversation about vacation days, there's a lot bigger problems about your performance (laughs) than vacation days, Um, which is it's a bit different than some of the mentality in finance, because it was very much of like arrive to the office before your boss, leave the office after your boss. So these people are like working from like 5 a.m. until midnight and sleeping very few hours but for me it was it was it was quite different and i traveled a lot because i was doing maybe 60 transactions a year at that point in time all across north america so i was essentially on the road five days a week home on the weekends um and so it was it was a very rapid pace a very good learning experience and i i basically stumbled into it to be honest with you i'd love to say that i like sought them out but I was, yeah. I was, I was in that situation where I was applying to anyone and everyone that would have me, right. and it was just a very fortunate uh, event to be able to land there and have an awesome boss as well that that really helped guide me. When you were looking for your first job, considering I guess your your time abroad, did you want to work overseas as well, or were you set on really like let's say getting getting a job on Wall Street or getting a job in the U.S.? No, I re- I really wanted to do something more international. Um, but at, the, at that point in time, it was like, take what you can get. 
And so when I left that job, I did go international. So I, I moved from a firm that was in New York. I moved to DC uh, for a global private equity firm. Um, and so with that company, I was, I was, a, I was a portfolio manager that oversaw, uh, what is it? So we had 17 different funds across 19 different countries, um, all across the globe. And so that was, that's, that started getting the international em emphasis. And I really just kept on kind of steering along with that. But the move from New York to DC was not totally very easy. Yeah. Yeah. Like why was it not you, easy? Uh, two things. One, you would think that going into DC, that the cost would end up being lower. Again, preconceived notion that the cost would end up being lower. I mean, I had, I had a great deal on my apartment, you know, it's, it was, it was a fantastic apartment in New York. Absolutely loved it. But when we moved to DC to find a place at the same price point was just like these awful rundown places. And so the only place that we were able to get that was had any level of comfort or of similarity was actually outside of the city proper and was in Arlington, which is technically in Virginia, still along the public transportation lines. But it was outside. But it's still in Virginia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's 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 not it's not the city. Um, but a lot of people kind of lived out in that area. And the other thing that was challenging was, you know, I was married at the time. I got married shortly after grad school, um, and so convincing my wife to leave the city that she dreamed about living in as a kid also not easy. Because I, I think like New York is always seen as like a place where you can sort of make it right. I mean, San Francisco has its own reputation, but I think New York has its own shine, especially um, especially if you listen to a lot of Western music. I think be, growing up in Asia, I, I always thought about New York as like the place growing up, you know? <laughs> I mean, Alicia Keys didn't write that song for no reason. Exactly. So how did you handle like the move? Like I honestly would have thought the house or like the, the apartment in DC would really be better than the one in New York. <laughs> but it was not, it was not. The apartment, the apartment in New York, I mean, we, we lived in Manhattan in the Upper East Side in this beautiful apartment that was far cheaper than it should be just because there was a subway line construction nearby and oh, okay. it drove the rent down. But like, as far as like the zone, I mean, there's this divide between people, like every neighborhood in Manhattan has like a characteristic and people don't yeah. like to leave their neighborhoods. But no, it was, it was, it was, it was a fantastic place. And like, we had this conception that we would move down to DC, our money would go for so much further. We'd live like Kings and Queens in, in a, in a, in a, in a lower tier city. And we were completely wrong. Uh, we did a little bit of scoping. Ultimately, after we were there for a couple of years, we started to like it because there's these things like they converted a lot of railroad tracks to bike paths. Oh. So you could actually ride like a full century bike ride on a dedicated bike lane of a train track that was converted and rarely have to see cars other than when that train track would cross oh, that's uh, beautiful. roads. And so we started getting very physically fit. Uh, my wife started biking to her office. I sometimes would bike to, to my office. Um, and it was uh, health wise, we ended up becoming very physically fit during that time period because it's a very active, city it's one of the most act physically active cities in the u.s oh very cool like in, in new york that's probably not what you guys would have ended up doing you take the take the subway right or walk take a cab yeah you still walk a lot uh, in new york but it's it's not it's not as like 
connected to nature where you jump out where you take a take a little bit of a trip outside and you're in a nature reserve you've got rock climbing you've got hiking trails you got the shenandoah forest uh, so there were some positives about moving uh, but moving's never easy moving's never moving's never easy and you know over the time that i've been with my wife we've we've moved whether moving apartments or moving cities we've moved what one two three four five six seven times uh, so this we've been married now 14 easier? years so like every other year almost <laughs> oh my goodness uh, this moving yeah. ever get easier Uh, I mean, we haven't moved in the last like six or six years or so. So for a while, when when we were relatively new, newly married, I guess, um, we moved quite a bit, uh, a couple of times within the same cities and a couple of times into new cities. Um, but it gets it gets easier until you start having children. So now we've started having children, and it, it's not easy. It's not it's not going to be any easier now. Probably really hard because I think. If you move your kids in, and this goes always the question of like, oh, will they have new friends? Will they settle in? What's the education like? I think, as you mentioned, it's also very tough um, to see the different kinds of education styles across. Yeah, yeah, you're it's you're no longer just thinking about yourself. You have to think about somebody else. Um, it's it's mu it's much me easier to be nomadic when it's when it's just uh, <laughs> yourself or one other person. Mm. How how was DC like? Because I feel like my impression of DC it's like a very political place. Like you're there because you're working maybe in government or you're interested in working with the government, right? But you're there as sort of an investor, right? Yeah, yeah. So like, did that change the way you thought about investing, or does that mean like your firm was a bit different from the others in that sense? Yeah. So the the reason why that firm was located in DC is because it was an impact investor. So a lot of the funding came from development finance institutions, foundations, international finance institutions. So like, IFC is was was one of the investors there. So like, there's there's some logic to why it was there. But yeah, like when you when you look when you do like the comparison of like New York to DC. There is this joke that a friend of mine used to say that New York is like a where do you work, and, and basically when you say where do you work, it's 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 another way of saying how much do you make, um, and DC is more of like a who do you know, because it's all like political. It's all like can you pull strings? Are you a lobbyist? Who do you know? And so it's it's a little bit of a difference in regards to what 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 does it mean to have power. Which environment did you feel more comfortable in? I feel like they're polar opposites. None of them, I can say, is better or worse, right? Yeah, maybe they're both challenging. <laughs> they're they're both challenging. I I honestly like my mentality doesn't really fit into either of those buckets. So like, to me, to me, the motivating factor has never been to accumulate uh, uh, and to kind of like shine on the fact of oh, I make I make X Y Z. Or I know so and so that 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 sort of thing is not a motivating factor for me, um, so I never really fell into it. Those are uh, those are again stereotypes that are based in certain number of people that are within those cities. But like in both experience in both cities, we've met some really incredible people. Um, and the nice thing about living in a variety of places, and the nice thing about uh, some of the moves that we've made. Is we've really developed some lifelong friendships across the globe, uh, and ones and work experience to where now I can rely on and be able to have a network of people that I can connect with 
to either help my portfolio companies or help people that I know. What's it like sort of being in all of these sort of very different systems? So you grew up in a very small town, totally different mindset, totally different lifestyle. Uh, you go to New York, it's more of a where do you work kind of place. It's a totally different environment as well. Totally different mindset and type of people. I think all over Twitter, you see these stereotypes like San Francisco person, New York person, etc. person, um, and then DC. Like, how does it sort of shape the way that you think about yourself and your beliefs? Because in one city, like something that you say or the way you act might fit something, but you move to another city, it doesn't fit. So how do you, how did that sort of shape the way that you think or the way that you act or maybe the way that you see yourself? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, to, to be honest with you, I think, I think it's, it comes back to, leaving your assumptions at the door of like the interactions i always have to kind of separate from those preconceived notions versus what i'm trying to bring to the table and maintaining my own constant center um it's 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 very difficult for an individual to change who they are inside especially especially when you're no longer you know a young child you're, you're pretty much already formed and so the key aspect is being able to have some agility and flexibility in order to cope with different environments and different sorts of setups. And the, the, key, the key aspect of that is leaving those assumptions at the door and keeping an open mind. Uh, open mind leading to kind of a growth mindset of just having that level of curiosity. I think curiosity is probably one of the biggest things that has enabled uh, enabled me to 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 manage with different environments and be able to um, cope with the differences. But again, people are people are essentially all the same when you dig down into it. Um, the this this the same sort of like priorities and needs that individuals have are essentially the same. Bits bits of cultural difference, bits bits of preferences, and so forth. But for the most part, all the same. Was there ever a time where you felt like it was hard to stay true to who you are? You were doing something or part of something and you felt like, okay, does, this doesn't align with what I want. And how did you deal with sort of those moments if that happened to you? I think the only time that I could say that that happened uh, was before I got out of my hometown um, because I was, going down, I was going down a path that was probably not best suited for me uh, and, and realized that and, and decided to make a change. Um, but since then, I think for the most part, uh, it's, it's been relatively easy in order to stay true because once you get over the hardest hurdle, um, the rest of it starts to seem a lot easier, even if it's not necessarily easy. Um, you know, I've gone from being an employee to now having my own company. That's not an easy change. But the first hurdle is really the biggest thing. Once, once you, once you make that leap, then it's just a matter of keeping uh, keeping the perseverance uh, behind it and making sure that you iterate and adapt to the circumstances while constantly maintaining forward motion. So you mentioned the leap that you took initially, right? And for you, the first hurdle is always the hardest and you still remember it as sad. Are there any like key experiences where you almost felt like you really wanted to give up or like what were the most challenging moments of that time? Um, I mean, in those, in those times, I mean, it was, it was the first time that I ever hopped on a plane. So going into an entirely new experience, 
uh, and going into it alone is, is, is not the easiest thing. I'm not the only person in the world that's had to go through that. So it's, 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 it's something that has a lot of track record where other people have proven that it's possible. So I kind of realize that I'm not unique uh, in, in that respect, that it's, 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 not, it's not something that is, is brand new. And if other people can do it, I can do it too, uh, sort of thing. But it's, it's, it's not easy. And the same thing with uh, you know, launching, launching my own firm. Being an entrepreneur is incredibly difficult because now you are solely responsible for your own destiny. And it's not easy to, to manage, but it's much more rewarding uh, than, yeah. than being like a, a, a wage employee. But you don't have the consistency. So it's, it's a certain sort of mentality that's, that's required in order to cope with it. Um, but it's all been, it's all been done before in one shape or another. Uh, you know, like there's a, there's a quote that I love using that I I think is associated with Mark Twain, but it says history doesn't repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes. And so it, the circumstances may not be identical, but it definitely rhymes. And so you can learn a lot by looking at what others have done and realize that if others have done it, so can you. So that thought, you know, that other people have done it really helped you in those times when you were younger and it still stays with you today um, in your different experiences. I, I think yeah. so. I think so. Mm -hmm. I, I've, always, I've always tried to be a student of like biographies and those sort of things uh, and realizing, you know, uh, the lessons that, that I can take from, from others. From the biographies that you've read, are there any that really particularly stood out to you or any that resonated with you the most? Oh, that's a that's a really good question uh, because I, I've actually I've gone through like phases over my life where I get like obsessed with a particular topic. Uh, yeah. So like not a person, when, a topic. Yeah, like a, like a theme. And so like when I when I was like super obsessed with like exploration, I would read all of like the biographies and things that were written on some of the great explorers. Uh, whether it's like Magellan, Descartes, all of all of these sort of like guys, even even like. Um, God, I'm drawing Lewis and Clark in the U.S. and and, the, and those sort of guys are like Marco Polo. Like, there's like phases where I go through, and then like you start getting into. I would read a lot of the biographies of like uh, U.S. presidents, like Teddy Roosevelt and those sort of guys. And then I start getting into the like the tech industry, and like of course, I think everybody's read one or two of the biographies on Steve Jobs because who hasn't at this point in time or at least watched the movie or something along those sort of lines. But even though they're not biographies, a lot of, a lot of them actually have like uh, books that are based upon how they built their company. So there's a ton of things out there along those sort of lines that, that you can get a lot, a lot of information on. Um, and when it comes down to it, every, like everyone passes through those struggles. There, I, I, I can't say that there's any startup that I've heard of that didn't have a near-death experience. And so, like, if people can make it through those sort of circumstances, then it's kind of like constantly showing an individual that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and that you just have to keep on moving forward in order to find it. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think I use that kind of as my motiva uh, inter internal motivator. I like the concept, like, if you could survive that near-death experience, you, you can actually push through with anything that comes at you. Yeah, yeah, exa exactly, exactly. I mean, so many companies have had to pivot, uh, are completely different than what they started as. Um, and there's some that are, like, super slow burn, 
companies where they just kind of like were relatively flat for a long period of time and they just kind of hockey sticked up. And so I think that there that there's an aspect of just keeping keeping clear on what your thesis is. And if everything still makes sense to you, to keep the motivation towards building towards that. Do you think there's a sort of power in the surviving of a near-death experience? Like if I could live through that, I can live through anything. And is that what you felt in, in like your most difficult times and after you've overcome them? I think so. I, I I don't know whether or not I would classify anything that I've personally gone through as like a truly near-death experience. Um <clears throat> I mean, even even some of the even some of the tough times when I, when I was younger, I, I don't know if I would necessarily put into put into those sort of categories. But certainly, when when there's faced with a tough situation, I kind of apply the same, and I'm like, well, if if I was able to do this before, then I can do this. That's 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 coming up now, um, and just kind of u- utilizing that and say, okay, I, I can if if I can do this, I can continue to do more and more and more. And there's an accumulation of those experiences that builds confidence and grit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, grit is something that some people will say that you're born with it, but I think you also accumulate it by getting forced into difficult situations. And there's there's honestly like throughout many parts of the world, but definitely out here, there's a stigma around failure. And so when somebody sees you try something new, there's this perception that you must succeed otherwise you will have like this stigmatized attachment to failure. Yeah. But failure and in- innovation are like hand in hand. You can't inv- you, you know, you can't invent something if you didn't fail a time or two. You know, electricity, like you can go through the list of every major invention that humankind has and there was they a failure a that before they got it. Yeah, there was a failure that will happen just before it. And so you know, I've I've comment, commented a number of times in in groups and different sorts of circles that we need to kind of celebrate failure a little bit more. Like when I look around Southeast Asia, you know, there's a, there's a number of like community engagement groups. There's a number of activities. Some countries are a little bit more active than others. I think Malaysia is a little bit lagging in in some of these sort of things. But within those yeah. sets, I really like seeing like. Uh, there's 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 the there's this style of event called the fuck up nights, um, where you basically that, yeah. yeah you basically discuss your failures, and it's really good to have like a successful entrepreneur come up and say we tried this we had to destroy it uh, because we tried and we failed, and there's like great quotes from Bezos and and so many other entrepreneurs that if you really want to move the needle on your business and the same applies to life you have to take risks and the risk needs to be proportional with your current status so if you if you're if you're further along high status and you want to move the needle and become even become even further along you have to take a bigger risk not necessarily meaning like proportional to what you have you know but bigger than if you had nothing um just to be able to move the needle. So when companies are looking at it, or even like first-time entrepreneurs, it's better to do and fail and learn than to never have done any of that. Because then, what did you learn? So yeah, that's my that's my ramble on <laughs> on, on the need to try and fail. I, I would agree. So no worries on the ramble. I, I think we could jump ahead and like 
So you moved now to Malaysia, and you're working at an impact firm there, right? How do you get from that to starting your own fund in Malaysia? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the the, the starting point oftentimes is why Malaysia in the first place. And it was, you know, I, I took over the Asia portfolio for a fund. Um, and so Malaysia was honestly just because of the well-connectedness of the airport. Because between the airlines that operate here, you can get to any primary or secondary, even tertiary cities with a direct flight. And so for anyone that travels a lot, layovers are like the bane of your existence. So being able to get places with direct flights is fantastic. But during the time that I was here in Malaysia, I started getting quite involved within the startup ecosystem. So I was a business coach. I was a mentor. I did a number of different sorts of volunteering of my time in order to help the startup community. And so what I noticed over the course of that time is that Malaysia is is a pretty overlooked market in general. Um, most times when you think about, uh, VC in Southeast Asia, Singapore obviously is the number one name that comes to mind. It's, it's kind yeah. of, um, the center of gravity. It's, 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 it's a magnet for capital. It's a magnet for finance. It's a magnet for all of these sort of things. So it has that sort of like nature to it capital city of the region. However, however people want to kind of like relate it that way. And then beyond that, it starts going into high population markets. So Indonesia uh, is, 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 is another one, a big one. Um, right. But there's a, there's a lot of areas within Southeast Asia that just don't get sufficient amount of attention. Um, even though there's some really fantastic entrepreneurs that are doing really interesting things. And Malaysia is one of those destinations because I'm physically on the ground. I'm talking to the people. I see these people. I have regular conversations with them. And I, and the biggest issue that they're having is not, uh, the viability of the idea or the business. Many of them end up, uh, bootstrapping and finding their way. But the problem is, yeah. is that the funding ecosystem is just terrible. Um, and there's a number of reasons that I could go, that I could go into for that, but really like the, the primary availability is these really small amounts of money. And then there's a lot more availability if you can justify large, large, large sums, because then Singapore opens up, international capital opens up, but you need to be able to justify multi-millions of a capital raise in order to open up these bigger pools of capital. But what was missing in Malaysia is really kind of this middle ground of how can I bridge this divide between these small pockets and the big raise that'll open up the rest of the world to me. And so that was the big gap, not necessarily that we didn't have, that Malaysia didn't have the founders. It was a funder problem, not a founder problem. And so that was kind of seeing that over and over again was the impetus in order to finally say, hey, I could do something about this. Um, and then getting over that first hurdle and saying, okay, now that I actually say I could do something about it, am I going to actually do this? Um, and that's, that's, that's really the hardest part is to kind of cut the strings on, on the, on the uh, predictable paycheck and then go it alone. When I visited uh, Malaysia for work recently, I heard the same thing, like funding is just really tough. And I heard that repeated yeah. with most of the people that I came across and some people I still speak to now. Yeah. It's in, in different ways or forms, though, like the 
the issues with the funding, whether on the legal side or the availability side. But I think going past like the, okay, why should we, why did we start uh, Indelible Ventures? I want to ask you, like, how did you decide like when to take that next leap into like starting something? I mean, you work for a long time and it's easy to, to fall into that trap of, you know, you know, continue getting that paycheck, continue having that security, you know, especially um, having a family, it's hard to take on that risk, right? So how did you know, you know, it was time to, to go at it alone, finally? Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough one to kind of really nail, nail down. But I, I, I would say that it had been bouncing around in my head for quite a bit of time. And so I started looking into it. I started formulating the, the idea, um, had a number of conversations with people I know. It started with a few friends saying, hey, well, if you're just going to angel invest, let me, let me invest alongside of you. Uh, and then we could just do something that way. And then that kind of- And did you started, start with that? Uh, I mean, that started snowballing up into uh, the idea of, well, if I'm going to bring people that I know the one thing that you don't want is to have any sort of major disagreement. So you got to create contracts around it. So there's some guardrails um, to make sure that the conditions and the stipulations are clear. The other, the other key factor that ended up pushing me over the edge on it was there's this program called VC Lab that is run by the same people as Founders Institute. Um, and so I went through that program, which is essentially an accelerator in, in order to help individuals launch their first VC fund. Um, now, I've been in the industry basically my entire career doing different, different forms of investing at different, at different stages, um, but never on that side of the house. I'm always on like yeah. the front office, dealing with the companies and, and the portfolio and all of that. But there's this entire other side of the business that is very, very opaque. I mean, VC is an opaque industry to begin with, but there's this entire yeah. other side of it. Um, because VC, the money doesn't just magically appear for the VC unless it's like a family office or something like that. You got to go out and find it. Yeah. Um, and you got to convince people. Um, in a sense, you're like a founder, right? You have to fundraise. Yeah, like a first-time fund, institutions won't touch you. So you got to go. You got to do like a, you got to find angels, like the equivalent of angels. Um, how did you go about it? And like, how was the experience? Like, were you were you also like a founder in the sense like, okay, I have to work on my pitch? Absolutely, it's like it, there, there, it's it's a lot of the same, um, and a lot of the people that you go after, they are angels, so they under they kind of look at it as well of uh -huh. if you can't pitch me how how do i think you're going to help your portfolio pitch others um yeah so there there's a there's a bit of an aspect like that but really the key the key component when you go out there and it's the same advice that i give to a startup is that you're really looking at like a high value enterprise sales style uh pro process which you really you need to have the understanding that it's long-term relationship building because these are long vehicles. If you're if you're raising from angels or you're raising a seed round, or if you're raising a first time fund, you're basically committing to a multi-year, not just a few years, a very large yeah, number like of years of a relationship. Five to ten years. Exactly, exactly. So that being said, you're developing a relationship. And so the same way that high value enterprise sales are focused on that building of the relationship, their longer sales cycles, et cetera, 
The same ends up applying and going through the process of long list, short list, how do you qualify the leads, understanding who's within and outside, who's actually willing and not. Um, a lot of the same process applies. And when you look at the VC ecosystem, there was there was an article by Forbes that was that was talking about how difficult it is for emerging managers. And emerging managers is a terminology that's that's used for people that are on fund one or also like yeah. fund two or fund three. Generally, once you're past yeah. one, two, and three, you're 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 established. But in the in the article, it's talking about how institutional investors are shifting their investments to more established firms. And I'm reading it and saying, thinking to myself, they never invest into emerging managers unless it's like a general partner that's spinning out from like some marquee name or like some partner that's spinning out. Generally speaking, you're going to individuals and family offices and most times individuals, you're patching together a lot of uh, relatively smaller sized uh, numbers in order to fill things out. Um, so how did you go about finding these people? Sorry. I mean, it's it's the it's the it's the same way that you do everything. Uh, you 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 scrape your network and then just try to be as visible as possible. It's it's a it's a little bit of a tightrope tightrope walk because there's a lot of rules and regulations that are associated with it. What you can do and what you cannot do. So it's it's not easy, but if if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Nothing that's worth right. doing is extremely it's easy ever easy exactly yeah so if you want to do something rewarding it better be hard otherwise it's probably not as rewarding as you thought <laughs> and during that process what was your day-to-day -day like when you're trying to raise your first fund yeah so like the the the, pr the process when you're just getting started and and, tr and trying to become a vc for the first time is you know it's a, it's a lot of trying to understand what your intent is and so there's a, there's a lot of aspect of just trying to like define intent and intent is kind of like the, the framework of what you use in order to say, what is it that I'm actually going to be doing? So from your intent, you can then end up extrapolating and saying, okay, well, here's my point of view on uh, startups. And from that, you kind of develop a thesis and from that thesis, you kind of develop the rest of it. There's a really good structured approach. One, I, I really have to give credit to the folks over at VC Lab because they really simplify it, but the same way that accelerators are tough work, they make it, it's, a, it's, a, it's not an easy thing to, to pass through. It's, it's, it's quite challenging. Um, but no, I mean, it's, 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 it's a lot of phone calls. And you're yeah. also having to balance the the other side because you know you're 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 needing to kind of do both sides of the business all at the same time. Did but you it's, start? It, it's kind of like a hamster wheel as go well ahead. because like fund one has to go into fund two, turns into fund three. So like any VC that's out there ultimately is always going to end up needing to raise another one and another one and another one and yeah. another one. So like you're on this kind of hamster wheel where it gets easier over time. But you, the same way that a startup has to try and scrape through in order to get a seed round and then a, a round, it starts to get a little bit easier because your list of contacts and, and your, your, your contact list ends up becoming a lot more robust the longer you've been around. Um, but it's not, it's not easy. It's not easy. The, fir the first days of a startup are probably some of the hardest and the first days of 
building a VC are probably some of the hardest, but it doesn't actually ever end up getting easy. Do you feel like um, in the process of building the firm and making more of your investments, do you feel like the way you view Malaysia and the startup scene has changed a lot? Like, you know how they say you get into a topic or an interest and the deeper you get into it, the more you find out, the more that you get things proven and disproven. Are there any assumptions that you had that you're proven wrong or right about? Uh, I mean, so so far, um, the thesis is pretty much on the the exact same. Yeah. Although I would I would say like I've been formulating it for all of the years that I've lived in Malaysia, and the the biggest yeah. thing that changed. So so my primary interest is B two B tech enabled B two B, and specifically because it's a small population market, it's it has to be something that can scale internationally, because you just can't yeah. build. A large enough business. Something for only Malaysia. Yeah, I mean, it's a thirty-plus million population. You can you can do back of the envelope math on any business, and it's just going to end up being too small. If you're almost three hundred, like Indonesia, or honestly the Philippines, it could probably be a standalone market. Vietnam could be a standalone market. Malaysia is just too small. You have to you have to be multi-country in order to be viable. But the thing that has changed, which is largely a result of the pandemic, is historically B two B SaaS has been very difficult to adopt in this part of the world, and it's not unique to this part of the world. But the reason why is that a lot of businesses look at it, and, and instead of adopting a new technology, they just say, "I'll hire another person." Labor's cheap. Yeah. I'll just hire yeah, another person. You need me to do this? Well, I'll be more productive if I have another person doing stuff. So I'll have more output yeah. because one more employee doing stuff. And it's familiar territory because I know how to do HR and payroll and onboard and all of that. So I'm okay. And so SaaS yeah. adoption has met with that resistance. And similar to what I said about the hardest part is the first hurdle. And once you get over that first hurdle, you can build some inertia. Well, that first hurdle was forced upon all of these companies, and it was the pandemic. And so, because yeah. we went into these strict lockdowns across the region, a lot of the companies were just forced to figure out ways in order to adapt. And a lot of that adaptation came from the adoption of technology. And once they realized that it was not as hard as they initially thought, they started adopting more. And my this is this is one that we'll have to see as it plays out. But what I've seen is that we've broken down some of that resistance, and that we've moved along that tech adoption curve by a large number of years. There was a study back in 2020 by McKinsey that said that the APAC region advanced by 10 years. That's to be played out of whether or not there's a rebound or anything like that. But within the space. Southeast Asia constitutes a huge market, and as we start digitizing, and each country has different sort of government-led programs that are encouraging enterprise to adopt more technology to digitize and so forth, we're going to see a lot faster of a rate of adoption amongst those types of B two B technologies. The flip side of that is that with all of that adoption means that there's going to be a lot more competitors coming in to the arena. And so you're going to start seeing more mature ecosystems like Singapore trying to take the leadership role. You're going to see the new up and comers in the Philippines, in Thailand, in Vietnam, in yeah. Malaysia. I hope as well, all trying to stake a claim and take control of of markets. 
And so I think we're going to be in for some pretty exciting times. But for the most part, a lot of the companies of the West have not been aggressive as aggressive in marketing their existing products into this region. And some of the ones that have started coming out are much higher price point as well. And so there is an aspect that the low cost of the, the low cost base, we can actually produce scalable products at price points that still get us that, uh, that profitability that we need, as well as the, the economics and the scale opportunity. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm quite excited to see whether or not the thesis plays over time, but I think that the pandemic has certainly impacted how, uh, how my viewpoint and my interest level is, but we'll, we'll, we'll see, we'll see. It's going to be interesting times, I believe. On the personal side, how has being a VC in Malaysia versus like sort of being an expat in Malaysia changed the way you view maybe the country or experience the country? Um, I would say coming in and being a VC here is very difficult. Um, there's not a lot of engagement with private sector. Um, and so be just getting permission to work in the country and to to invest uh, to bring millions of cap millions of dollars of capital into the market was a big challenge and i've been pretty pretty out in the open in regards to how difficult the visa process was in order to be here um that be that being said as far as the startup community you know, whether, whether talking from a business standpoint or otherwise, you know, it, it's, it's a great place to be an expat, no matter what you do. It's a very good quality of life, in my opinion. Um, the prevalence of the English language is certainly fantastic. And that's what a lot of expats enjoy because it makes the adaptation to a new environment a lot easier because you don't have the communication barriers of living in a new country. Um, and infrastructure is all positive, et cetera. So, I mean, from the, from the career standpoint, people are really interested in having opportunities to get funded, to be able to get what they're passionate about and what they're working on brought onto an international or global scale. They just need the opportunity. And hopefully I can play a small part uh, and my role in enabling that. But there's a there's a lot of talent in play in uh, in places that are not as heavily trafficked, and I think that's that's the that's the key thing in 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 my viewpoint. And I guess to close, so we have this tradition that we're trying to start with every every session we have, and it's asking everybody outside of work, um, what's one thing that you want to accomplish with your personal life. This doesn't have to be something you want to accomplish by the end of the year, next month, or anything. But in general, is there something that's outside of work, just one thing that you want to accomplish um, in your personal life? One thing that I want to accomplish in my personal life, I mean, there's a, there's a handful of them, actually. Most of them are, revolve around travel or some sort of physical activity. So, um, you know, I've been to the, I, I, I hiked at the Annapurna Trail, but I'd love to go back and do it again. I'd love to do the do Everest. Uh, I have yet to do Kinabalu here in Malaysia. I'm an avid uh, and active hiker. So those, those sort of things are on my bucket list in order to accomplish. Even places like Kilimanjaro, I mean, you could start going through the list of, of, of ones, but the, this, this would definitely be like a bucket list sort of, 
sort of item and travel in general, because there's a lot of parts of the world that I've yet to explore. Um, you know, I, I've, I've done Middle East, I've done Europe, I've done the Western Hemisphere, Australia, Asia, etc. But I haven't really explored Africa uh, a whole lot. Um, and so that's, that's definitely on my bucket list. As far as far as beyond that, I, th I think I think it's it's mostly that. I mean, I, I'd I'd be I'd be I'd be remiss not to make some sort of family comment and just see my kids grow up and all of that. But I think that's actually work as well, uh, even though family is is not necessarily. But yeah, yeah, I think the the physical activity ones. Ultimately, I'd love to do an Ironman, but I think that's probably further out in my future. It takes a lot of time, dedication, and as a, I actually am a founder. As a founder, there's not a lot of time in order to like say, hey, I'm going to train for three hours a day. I know, right? <laughs> Especially for something like Ironman. <laughs> yeah, which is, which is really intense. I've done Olympic uh, length ones, so it wouldn't be, oh. it wouldn't be a huge jump. I mean, it's a huge jump to go uh to to that level of distance but there's some installed base of of capability there at least you're not starting from zero it, would, <laughs> it wouldn't be from tough. zero but like man do yeah, do like the really three tough. the three longest of each of those respective events and stack them up one after the other um it, t it takes a lot of time in order to train for that and that's something that i just don't have now but I'd love to mark that off of my bucket list and, and maybe put the standard tattoo on my leg like most of the, uh, the, the people that complete the Iron Man do. I'm sure you'll get to it sometime. <laughs> Someday. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe in a few uh, cycles of funds and when it, when it starts, if it ever starts getting easier down the road. What's your bet? The Iron Man first or the hiking Mount Kilimanjaro? I think the hiking is probably an easier one to, to, to accomplish. Um, and the, those ones, I could probably even throw the little ones on, on my backpack and, and carry them up with me. Ah, yeah, much easier. The other one, it's just, mm. <laughs> just you. <laughs> yeah, just me, just me. But that's, that's, those are more shared experiences. So like, uh, in, in unless, unless a family member is going to do it, uh, I'd probably opt for the shared experiences first and foremost. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. I got to know a lot more about you. So great to speak with you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It, it was uh, it was nice. I haven't told some of those stories in a very long time, especially the early days. Um, so hopefully, hopefully people don't get scared off by here. It's tough times uh, in, in the early days, but it doesn't have to be a straight line, I guess, is the is the is the takeaway uh, that I would that I would put on a lot of that. I agree. And if anything, if I was listening, I think it would be more of a hook. And I'm like, okay, I have to listen to the whole podcast now. <laughs> I have to hear this guy's whole story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he his, his school told him not to come back. And then yet somehow he ended up with a decent uh, career anyway. And he's in Malaysia and he started something of his own. Okay, I have to figure out what yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure you could edit together some hook or or, or uh, some clip to to tease it out and get people get people interested. Mm -hmm.